Chapter 1, he says in verse 6, God's got this. He who began the good work will complete it. Then he says, you've got this. The next little section is, you're doing a great job of supporting me, of preaching the gospel, of teaching, of growing the, the congregation at your church. So the Philippian church was beginning to grow. They had elders there. It's the opening verse. He's writing to the elders there. So, so he's got a really great work that he can see that they're doing. And he says, God's got this. You've got this. There's an abundance of faith in your life, and that's good. And then he says, let me give you a little update on me. I've got this. I'm chained to this guy. I've got an uncertain future. I can talk about all the bad stuff, but let me tell you what, what God's doing. And he says, God is using all of this to put the gospel inside the, the buildings of Rome, in the Praetorian Guard, and in, in the, the capital city where, where I've been arrested and I'm in trouble. Here's what God's doing. He's spreading the gospel among some of the most powerful Roman people there are. And Paul's saying, all of that's awesome. And he goes to this verse where he says, it doesn't matter whether I live or die. My goal, my ultimate goal, is to glorify God with my life. And so he gives this, this great understanding in chapter 2 when he says, I've got this. He says, for me to live, verse 21, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Either way it goes, God gets the glory and God gets to do the work. And so a very powerful truth. And he says, I've got this. Then when you get to verse 27, the last part of the chapter, he says, we corporately as a church need to function in a way that has this. And that's where he gives his first actual instructions. He says, here's what I want you to do. Walk in a manner worthy. God's got this. You've got this. You're doing a good job. I've got this. We've got this as long as we walk in a manner worthy. Worthy of the gospel. Put the gospel in the forefront of your mind. Think through the gospel. Think about what it meant for Christ to die on the cross to save you from your sins. And live to that moment in your life. Make that moment so important that everything else gets second to you. And uh, let that moment be important enough to you to walk, live your life out in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so we studied that last week. And I told you last week, chapter 2 and chapter 1... Uh, the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 really overlap each other greatly. I think chapter 2, verse 1, goes with the church instructions of we've got this. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there be any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and, and compassion, he starts listing these qualities that the church should have. And so on your handout, I, I listed them as the character necessary to walk worthy. Because the command, chapter 1, verse 27, is to walk worthy. And then when you move to chapter 2, he's going to talk about character, attitude, behavior, and some examples for you. So the character to walk worthy is really, I, I tied it with your notes last week, um, is here's what a healthy church looks like. Paul goes, here's what it would look like. If you did that, you would have an abundance of fellowship, an abundance of encouragement, an abundance of love for one another, an abundance of uh, compassion and affection for one another. And then he says in the next couple of verses you would have unity. Uh, there would be a unity of minds, a unity of spirits, and ultimately a unity of purpose. It's one of the coolest things about being in that pledge group I was telling you about with the Shrink the Divide meeting is when we have our uh, quarterly meetings, or it's really just sort of whenever we can make time to all get together, we have those meetings, uh, one of the things that happens is any pastor that gets up there to challenge us or talk to us or just express his relationship, his desire to have a healthy relationship in the community, is what he says. Any one of them. And it's awesome to watch it happen. 
says the only way this works is if Jesus Christ's cross is the most important thing to all of us. The only way it works. The only way we live in unity and, and oneness of purpose and, and work through all our little differences and not see each other as, as, as enemies and not have hatred in our heart, the only way it works is to elevate the cross. Man, when they say that, my heart just leaps out of my chest in those meetings. I'm like, that is exactly, exactly the goal and the purpose that Paul wanted everybody to have. And I've told you before, it's why in the New Testament church, you had these really weird small groups. You had these cell churches that started in people's homes where a Greek lady and a Roman citizen, devout, retired Roman soldier, um, who for all his life hated Jewish people and hated everybody except his own kind and maybe even just his military people. Everybody else was an enemy of that guy. He sits in a room with Samaritans and Jews and, and he just says, I just want to learn more about Jesus. And they all said, we just want to learn more about Jesus. So, and they got along with each other and it blew the mind of the community. They're like, so you go to a meeting where, where Jewish people and Samaritan people who hate each other and Greek people and Roman people who hate Jews and Samaritans sit in a room together and dialogue. Yes. We have a great food. We, we eat together. You know, do you eat Jewish food or Gentile food? Yes, we do. We eat both. It doesn't matter. We're not fighting over that anymore. We're not hung up in all that. We're living under the grace of the cross. And so Paul's trying to say the good churches, the healthy churches have this unity of mind and love and spirit and purpose, and they're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so that's when he gives his second little command. He kind of just drops it in. I call this like a sub-command, a sub-instruction, because he says, make my joy complete. It's one of the little quiet moments in Paul's life where he's going, hey, if for no other reason, because I'm in prison and having a pretty rough deal here, could you just do something for me? Make my joy as your spiritual leader and founder, founder of your church, you would just make my joy complete by living in unity and having all that. And when we taught through this originally, it's in the webpage uh, message section and on your app in the messages. When we talked through this ch- chapter uh, originally, I took some time to talk to you about what the unity of the body really means. And if you, if you didn't hear that, I'd love for you to go back and just catch it because Christ says in, in His priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says that the way we testify of the reality of the cross is to live in unity. That's what he says. The way we really testify of the reality of the cross is when we can get over our differences and not have all this, you know, well, I don't like that color carpet, or I don't like that kind of music, or I don't like that kind of pulpit, or or I don't like that kind of church. We can get over all of that and say, hey, let's come under the cross and come under the grace of Jesus and say we're going to work through this unified together. Now, we're going to stand on core values and we're going to stand on core doctrines that Christ is the only means of salvation. We're not going to let somebody say, well, there's other ways too. No, there's not. There's just one. There's just one. And we're going to stand on that. And where that's offensive, we're going to have to help people understand that's the truth. And the truth can be offensive at times if you choose to believe lies. But at the end of the day, we are going to learn to work together around our differences and we're not going to let ourselves be separated. That's what Paul's driving for. Then he gets to this really key part of chapter 2, which is, is 
I think the whole book hangs on this in chapter 1, walk in a manner worthy. Well, how do I do that? Chapter 2, verse 5, third command of the book. And you'll see it in your notes here. Have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You have to have an attitude to walk worthy. And what's the attitude? You have to have the attitude of Jesus. Well, that sounds really hard. Yes, it does. It sounds almost impossible. (laughs) Um, Yes, it does. Everything in your faith life is impossible. Did you know that? Do you know that everything God calls you to do is technically impossible for you by yourself alone to muster up and do? You're not going to walk worthy. You're not going to walk righteous. You're not going to be loving or kind or gentle or compassionate to people by nature. You're not. Unless the Holy Spirit has done a work in you through the cross, unless you've trusted Christ and something cool happens where all of a sudden now you realize, hey, that's different for me. I feel a little compassion for those people, not anger. That's the work of Christ in your life. And so Paul's saying we need to have this attitude in us which existed in Christ. And it says, he existed, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, clung to. He emptied himself. That's our famous kenosis passage of the Bible. If you want to get real theologically wise and technical, you can say this is the kenosis passage because of that word emptied is the word kenosis. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men... And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now I'm 1,000% positive you can get this scriptural truth embedded in your hearts. If you can take this passage and get it locked up in your head, put it into your lives, then we will be all that God ever intended us to be. God glorifying, using our lives and fulfilling the Great Commission, living out the highest kingdom values. If We can just get this picture that Paul's saying, have this attitude in you which is also in Christ. I highly recommend it as part of your daily prayer. Lord, let me have your attitude today. Let me adopt your attitude. Would you adjust my attitude? My dad, you say, you need need an attitude adjustment. You need to adjust your attitude to Jesus' attitude. It's very different from your attitudes. It is. We we don't have the attitude of Christ naturally. So we have to request it and trust it. And Paul's saying it's possible to do it. And then he just explains a little bit about Jesus, and there's some incredible theology here that I'm going to highlight in like five minutes, almost an insult to the passage, the beauty of the passage. But since we're doing an overview of the chapter, I want you to just remember these thoughts that we covered in detail. Really, we covered two different times at Easter and just a little before. Christ's position was that he was the highest person. He's equal to God. He's God, very God. We talked about this. Jesus Christ can rest his feet on the earth. The earth is his footstool, it says in the Psalms. The earth is his footstool. The Bible says Jesus can measure the universe in the span of his hand. In the span of his hand. You don't know anybody that can do that. But Jesus can. He can measure the universe. It says he can hold all the water on the earth in, in the palm of his hand. All the water. That's incredible. It says he can speak words and make universes. He can speak words and make universes of people. Solar systems and universes. Universes beyond universes. That's amazing. And here's the deal. He was equal to God, but his attitude was he was, he was content with his relationship to God so that he could actually let go of that. In his contentment, um, he was able to let go of it. Now we're going to talk about this word content in chapter 4 because it's a theme, a dominant theme in chapter 4. 
And uh, Paul talks about his contentment and how he has that. Now he's in jail, got a lot of uncertain future happening. And you go, how in the world are you content like that? Well, Paul tells you chapter 4, so hang in there. Uh, we got to get through chapter 3 and we'll, we'll dive into it in chapter 4. But Jesus' ex- contentment is recognized here because he's equal to God, but he doesn't have to cling to that. He's very content with whatever God's plans are. So his behavior was that he emptied himself. He was selfless. And he emptied himself of his riches and his independent spirit. We read these verses in the original teaching time. He he emptied himself of his glory. There's a a prayer where Jesus prays to God. He says, would you restore to me the glory that we once had before all of this? So he emptied himself of his glory. If If he wouldn't have emptied himself of his glory, by the way, nobody could look on him. You know, in the Old Testament, every time I looked on the glory of God, it, you know, that didn't fare very well for him. Moses just caught the very backside of his glory and uh, changed his, his face and his hair and his skin and everything. So, but he, his behavior was that he, he became a servant and he humbled himself. He became a servant and humbled himself to us. That's what it looks like to empty yourself and to have an attitude. The attitude of Christ is what it, when it ultimately boils down to is it doesn't matter who you are you say I'm going to behave in a way that says I'm your servant I want to, I'm here to help you I'm here to serve you and help you and his action I write it down this way his action was it says that he was fully obedient to the father fully obedient to the father you want to you give yourself a test this week every day a couple times a day just ask yourself am I being fully obedient to the father today to God the Father. Am I being fully obedient to God the Father today? My thoughts and my behavior and my response to the people around me and my phone conversations and my, my Facebook interactions, am I being fully obedient to the Father? It's a great question to ask yourself. And here's what Jesus' attitude accomplished for him is that he was fully obedient to the Father and he, his sacrifice was that he laid down his life even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. And then, of course, it says God's highly exalted him because of this. Highly exalted him. So in the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess. There's not a person you know that's not one day going to bow before Jesus. I highly recommend you practice that early. Get used to doing it. Be happy doing it. Like go, wow, I love worshiping God and bowing before him in my heart, on my knees, I love just being bowed before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because when I do that here, it's practicing for heaven. We're going to do it all the time in heaven, all the time. We're going to bow before Him. I'll teach you a new Hebrew word before we can do our closing song. But His behavior was that He was... Jesus' behavior was that He was selfless. And the key is selfless sacrifice. Live your life with selflessness and sacrificially toward others. Um, so you're manifesting the attitude of Christ. When you live self, selfishly, when you live selfishly, it's exactly the opposite of how Jesus wants you to live. Exactly the opposite. Now those of you that raise children, or even those of you that have cared for babysat children, when you see selfishness between two little children, you know, when you see one child being very selfish, doesn't it just grit, you grit and grieve and you're like, what in the world is happening? It's just sad. I mean, it hurts you and then you're like, you know, you got to discipline, 
about it. You know why? Because selfishness is not in the character of God at all. We're created in the image of God. When you see selfishness just blatantly like that, especially in a child that, that in your heart and head is sort of an innocent, you know, they, they don't practice, you know, nobody's taught them to be selfish, by the way. Their sin nature does that. But they want their toys, they want it's mine, 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 and they're doing all that, and you're going, what is wrong with you? Well, that's what God does with us when we go, no, God, I don't want to do it your way, I want to do it mine, mine, my way. He goes, what is wrong with you? That's selfish. How about you just relax and lay yourself down and, and offer yourself up as a sacrifice and service to me and to those around you. Become a servant to others. Become a servant and humble yourself, and then you'll have this attitude that we need in order to walk in a manner worthy. And so then he begins to talk about the specific behavior of walking worthy. In this beautiful verse in chapter 2, verse 12, often mistaught and misunderstood. So let me just cover it with you. Chapter 2, verse 12. I said 20, but it's actually chapter 2, verse 12. Here's the next command in the book. It's the fourth command. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, yay, a little, little promotion for them, Good job, little star on your little, little charts in your Sunday school room, little star. You've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You've been good. Remember he said in chapter 1, you guys are doing great. You got this. Okay. He says, since you've obeyed all, all of this, here's what I want you to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvations. Many people teach this so badly that God wants you to work for salvation. That's not what it says at all. It actually says work out your salvation, and then it says God's got this, for it is God who has at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's working in you, and the, the terminology that's used here is we need to work out our salvation. Now I'm just going to read the next couple of verses and come back and emphasize that. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. By the way, that's not working anything out. That's arguing. So that you will prove yourselves to be... What are we trying to prove? Blameless and innocent children above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We can be light in darkness if we'll work out our salvation and let what God's done in us become the thing that we can do. So what, are the, what does it mean to work out? There's two grammatical meanings of this beautiful Greek word. Okay, the first one is real simple. The first one means to bring to completion or fulfillment. So fulfill, complete that which God has done. Oh, I thought it said in chapter 1, verse 6, He who began the work will finish it. Yes, he will. That's why it also says in chapter 2, verse 12, He's in you doing the work. He's doing it. You just got to give him freedom to do it, right? You got to let him do the work in you, which means you got to submit to obedience. Again, another word that Paul uses quite a bit in this text is obedience. The second meaning is the real important meaning. It means to mine out that which is already there. The, the colony of Philippi, the Roman colony of Philippi, was located around a bunch of silver mines. And so this is a mining term that Paul's using with the church when he's writing from Rome back to them. He's saying, hey, you guys know what it means to mine stuff out. That mountain has a ton of treasure in it. But somebody's got to work very hard to dig the rocks out and make a hole and get a cave going and then eventually make a tunnel or whatever you're doing to finally get to this treasure, this vein of 
silver that's in there and we mine it out. So I'm supposed to mine out that which is in me, work out my salvation that God is working in me. He's working it in me. I need to work it out now. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful verse where he's saying, work it out. Well, what's in me? So it's a very good question. There's this uh, concept in modern psychology. It's used a lot today. Uh, I, I read it a bunch in some bad blogs and uh, people giving counsel to teenagers and young people and millennials that are struggling with depression. And, and it, it says the help that you're seeking, the help that you need, all that you need, the beauty, the real beauty, the real talent, the real value that you need is already in you. There's this terrible theology or psychology out there that says every person has this beauty within them. Okay, That's not biblical at all. Okay, The Bible says we were created in the image of God and we fell from that. And so now when you look at man's heart, when Jesus looks at man's heart, Matthew 7, 21-23, man's heart is full of deceit and lies and covetousness and murder. Your heart is full of sin. So if you're mining out that stuff, you're going you're gonna to end up with a mess on your hands and a whole bunch of problems, right? But there is a truth, this, this psychology that people are trying to, these great psychologists come up with, and it's really just a deal of trying to help their self. You're trying to, I understand, trying to help people's self-esteem. Hey, you're, you know, you're a beautiful person on the inside, so you don't have to feel so bad about yourself and all that. I get that, right? Just don't tell them a lie. The beauty actually lies when Jesus comes inside you and changes you. The Bible says He makes you new and He restores all that He intended ever to be in you. So now you are absolutely beautiful and gifted and talented through Him who did the work in you. And you can, you can see that in a ton of scriptures. Let me just run through a bunch of them with you. I think I put most of these in your notes for you. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 8. Paul, Peter says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. You've trusted Christ. That's faith. That's believers. By the righteousness of our God and Savior. That's, that's where the work came from. Grace and peace be to you. He says, verse 3, Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God's power has given you everything you need for life and godliness right now. You lack nothing to be fully obedient to God. Remember I said you should pray or think about every day, am I being fully obedient to God? You lack nothing. You have all the resources and all the power and all the mental abilities and all the determination and all the motivation. It's all there. He's given you every, unless that verse is not true. And we know it is. God says through Peter, you've been given, every, you've been granted everything. Word granted, by the way, is word grace. You've been graced everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need. You got it. Now you have to mine it out, right? So Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22 says it this way. And, and it's, it's the, we call it the, sometimes we misspeak and say the fruits of the Spirit. But this is the fruit singular. The fruit of the Spirit is one thing. There's one fruit and it's love. When you live out agape, love, singular subject, singular verb, singular object, uh, past, 
most of my classes in high school, and some of them in college. Uh, but the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is singular, love, singular, agape. That's the big God love. When you, when you use that as your fruit, it looks like this, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and there's no law against that. So those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires, and we now have fruit. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's giving you the minute you get saved, the Holy Spirit brings into your life fruit. One fruit, love, right? Where does he put that? In your big toe? No. Where's he put it? It's in your heart. It's in your head. It's in your life. You have it. That's why Paul's saying to the Philippian church, mine that stuff out. If you're not experiencing patience with people, you're not mining out, you're in the wrong canyon in your heart. You're in your flesh and not the Spirit of God stuff. Because the Spirit of God put that stuff in you. And He put it in you for a purpose, for you to live and work it out. So those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and we're not looking in that canyon anymore. We're over here mining out the gold and the silver good things the Holy Spirit placed within us. That's why Paul says, and I'm just going to give you these next three verses, very important. Here, here's where Paul says you have to work at this. Okay? Sorry to my millennial friends and anybody else who may desire to, to microwave their faith. Um, we love to do things quick and easy. Don't we? We've just got a terrible habit of doing them quick and easy. I, Josh and I were... Academy the other night. I mean, every time I get in the line, there's just this guy up there, and he's trying to explain. And it was the short. We we, we were in the long line for a long time. We're like, hey, yeah, short. Let's move over there. So we move over there, and this is a guy buying a big, big pair of tennis shoes for himself, and I guess his granddaughter or somebody, an older man, had these little teeny pair of shoes, a pair of cute Nikes, pink Nikes. And uh, when they rang up, they rang up for like twenty bucks more than what he said the sign said. So now we're stuck in that line. And we're just standing there, standing there, standing there, standing there. And waiting. And I'm thinking, come on. So we finally moved back over to the other line. After we watched about eight people that were behind us go by us, we moved back over to that line. And it gets hung up with something. I'm like, great stars in the morning. But our culture is just, let's see how fast we can get this in. Let's get in and get out and do it. And we need, you know, the, of course, uh, of course you, and Chick-fil-A has mastered the drive-thru. Man, don't you love those Chick-fil-A drive-thrus where there's like 75 cars and you just go, zoop, 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 zoop. You never even hardly slow down. You just, they take your order in line and then you pay before you ever get up there and you just kind of throw it at you out the window when you go by. They, hey, it's yours. You know, they know your name and everything. It's amazing how good they are at that good stuff, right? We, that's how we like it. Your faith life, not going to happen. Sorry to my millennials. Sorry to the generation of us that have created the fast foods and the microwavable stuff. You cannot microwave your faith. You actually have to work at it. You have to have this, the D word. Ooh. You have to discipline yourself. You have to have some discipline in your life. A discipline to get up and read the word. A, get, a discipline before you go to bed to read the word and say, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this to my life? God, what are you speaking to me in this word? A discipline that says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for God to help me apply these truths. And I'm going to pray for my friends and their needs because I trust the sovereign God to help. A discipline to actually say, I'm going to practice what I read. A discipline to say, I'm going to attend a fellowship and a, and a growth group where I can learn how to be better at this because 
God's calling me, the highest calling is for me to do this, not my job. i got to figure out how to do both. And so Paul says, let me just throw these verses at you, because when he says work out your salvation, he means work. It means labor like you're mining something out of a mountain. Okay, So here's some other verses that he uses. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, 26 and 27, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that when I preach to others, I will be disqualified. Paul says, I've had to discipline myself like a runner, like a boxer. By the way, he's writing to the Corinthian church and they're full of Greek culture, which is all about the Olympics. And so he's not talking about just, you know, doofus runners. He's talking about people that run, run. People that are serious. He's saying, I have to discipline myself like a runner. I have to discipline myself like a boxer. So that when, I am, when I'm working at this, I won't get disqualified. I discipline my body so that I, when I've preached, I will not be disqualified. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. We'll see this uh, next couple of weeks when we study Philippians chapter 3 over the next month. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God. I press toward it. It's not easy, by the way. He's having to press in on that. We'll study that word, that terminology. 1 Timothy 6. Timothy, I want you to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith. Pursue righteousness. You have your physical Bible and you look this verse up, you should circle the word pursue and write out next to it, write this phrase, run as if your life depends on it. That's, what, that's the kind of pursuit he's talking about. There's a couple phrases in the New Testament where this word is used where people's lives are in danger and they're, pursu- they're being pursued by somebody so they literally run away. Remember, remember the, the disciple in the Garden of Gethsemane? that was afraid he was going to get caught, and he actually runs out of his cloak. He actually, the original streaker, we think, from the New Testament times, he's actually, his cloak is, is caught by the Roman soldier, and he just runs out of his cloak and says he just ran naked through the garden. That's the word right here. Run as if your life depends on it. Run, and, and actually Paul says to Timothy, run away from evil and sinful things, and run as hard as you can towards righteousness Godliness, faith, love, and perseverance. And then here's the word. Fight. The good fight of faith. Put up a fight for your faith. Come on. None of that's easy. None of that's easy. You're not going to do that just laid back in a lounge chair with the air conditioner, you know, blowing all over you and, you know, microwave popcorn in your hand and your favorite drink. You know, that's not how the faith life's going to... You're not going to grow in your faith just eating popcorn sitting in a lounge chair. Not going to happen. You're going to have to discipline yourself. You have to get your get you a journal, get you a scripture book, do something to make yourself accountable to other Christians and get yourself working out your salvation. That's why Paul uses these. God had begun, has begun the good work, and then you have to mine it out through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, how am I going to do that? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to help me out every step of the way. By the way, if any of you, and most of you have, uh, discipline yourself to start that process. Man, the Holy Spirit keeps you into high gear once you get going. You can really get into high gear that way. And God will help you. So not only... And we can get into this whole debate in the culture that that's just too hard. We can debate it all day long, but the Bible says it's not too hard. 
And Paul gives, not only does he give this behavior, but he says, here's some men who did it, right? I'm just giving you a quick list at the end here. You've got them in your notes. Um, Jesus was the first example. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in you, which was in Christ. He's 100% man, by the way. He's 100% man. So you can have his attitude of selfless sacrifice. Okay, but he, you can go, well, I, he was also 100% God. You know, so... I don't know if I can be totally that, right? The truth is you can, scripturally. So then he says, well, you can also have Paul's attitude, who in the text that we're reading, he's living out his time in prison with joy. And he's saying, God's got this, and you, and I'm preaching the gospel even while I'm in my trial. I'm, I'm doing all that God intended me to do. I'm living my life in pure faith. I have the attitude of selfless sacrifice right here in prison. If I die, it's all for the body of Christ, and I'll be this martyr that... People can use as an example of a man who stood by his faith. If I live, I'm going to keep building churches. Selfless sacrifice. You say, well, that's good, but he is a 100% apostle. You know, so I'm, I'm not really an apostle. I didn't see the risen Lord, what a real apostle is in the New Testament. I haven't seen the risen Lord. I hear him in my head. And I read about him and I understand who he is and I trust him. But I'm not an apostle. So I'm not Jesus and I'm not an apostle. Well, then he goes, well, let me give you another example. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, I'm going to commend to you Timothy. I want to send Timothy to you. And Timothy's highest compliment in this passage is, he's the one that I can trust that will seek only the things of Christ. Man. If you could have something written on your tombstone, it would be, you know, he sought only the things of Christ. She sought only the things of Christ. That is a beautiful, beautiful way that Paul describes his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says he only seeks the things of Christ. What are the things of Christ? Christ longs that all men will be saved. The body of Christ would disciple those people into full, healthy, fully devoted followers who live in pure obedience, who walk in a manner worthy. That's what Christ desires. The instruction of the book. And so, he, Timothy's living that out himself. And Paul said, I commend Timothy to you. You go, well... But he is Paul's personal spiritual son. He was a son of an apostle, a spiritual son of an apostle. He's a real close friend and disciple of Paul, so I don't have any close friends that are like Paul, so I can't do that. So then Paul goes, let me throw one more at you. Here's Epaphroditus, my hero. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is just a guy that attends church at Philippi, man. He's one of us. He just, he's just in the church, and somebody said, hey, we need to send some, some care to Paul. Paul's in prison. We need to send some care to him. And we need him to, to be, we need to get a report from him. We need somebody to go down there and take care of him and love on him. Paphroditus goes, I'll go. What are your qualifications? I just got to say recently, I don't, I don't really have any qualifications. Probably have it. And they send him. He, when you read about Epaphroditus in the New Testament, there's very little about him. He's not some well-known, big name. I was discipled by John the Baptist or, you know, Peter and I are real close friends. None of that's reality. He's a guy in the church at Philippi. And we remember how the church started. We talked about all that. So he, he doesn't have this massive bunch of credentials. But when Paul talks about him, he says, man, this guy's awesome. And he's doing exactly what he should be doing, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel by serving people in need, by, by, by helping out church life people, giving information back to the church that they need, and, and he even did it, by the way, to the point of death. He almost died in the process, and he got real sick. And so they had to send him back. You remember all that story when we told it originally. 
But there's this cultural mindset that says we can't. That says we can't. It's just too hard. Pastor, it's just too hard. I mean, you're talking about Jesus and apostles and you know, people in the Old Testament, it's just, or in the New Testament, it's just too hard for me. And I'm going to tell you the whole book of Philippians, I dare you, if you get into the, that's too hard, I dare you to start memorizing big chunks of Philippians and learning it for what it really means. Because the whole point of the book of Philippians is you can, you should, you better. The whole point. Let me just take you to a couple of them real quick and we'll close out with this. It's not in your notes, so I'm just going to throw these at you. Philippians 4.13. I was required to memorize this on my football team as a kid. My older brother, Lynn, uh, coached most every football team I played on. I was real close friends with the coaches who, I, who were coaching me. And we were required to memorize this, this verse by my brother. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do... All things through Christ. All things. So I'd be out on the field, you know, puking my guts out trying to run the sprints. You know, guys out running me because I was slow as Christmas. And uh, and I'd tell my brother, I can't do this anymore, I can't do this anymore. He's like, oh no, say the verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'd run some more sprints. Now, I never got any faster, by the way. God didn't make me fast. Okay? But he did give me the endurance to just keep on keeping on. And I learned how that verse helps me keep on keeping on. And that's what Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've learned, he's actually writing in the context of riches, riches and wealth and poverty. He says, I've learned whether I'm rich or impoverished. Either way my life works. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When you look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began the good work will complete it. Does that sound like something can't be done? No. The whole point is it can and will be done. I can live a selfless, I can have a selfless attitude of Christ because he gives me examples of men who did. I can mine out the treasures of my faith that are hidden within me because he tells me I can do those things. He placed them in me to do that. I can have a life at whatever income level God has granted me, rich or poor, low or high income, and I can be content because God is at work in me. I can go through long trials. Paul's two years chained to a guard with an uncertain future. Two years in prison chained to a guard because God has got this and He's taken care of it and He who began the good work is going to complete it. I can do all things. I can live with an uncertain future. Because God has this and the good work that He started. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, Northside, we can take hope. Whatever the trial, whatever the journey, whatever the difficulty is, we can take hope that you can face all things God asks you to face with His help. The Holy Spirit's already placed all that you need for life and godliness in you. Jesus Himself walks with you in those trials. He says in, in Matthew, you can, you can rest your burden on Him because His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Yoke yourself to Him. And He says when we do all that, we will shine as lights when we mine out the treasures of God. Now the truth is, Jesus is Lord of all. The point of chapter 2, Paul makes is, have this attitude in you which was in Christ. 
who being Lord of all, and who every knee will bow to, He lived it out like that, and you need to work out your salvation so you look a lot like Him. You just look a lot like Him.